Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Stuttering Foundation podcast. This is Sarah McIntyre recording from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I am honored to welcome today's guest, Dr. Derek Daniels. Hi, Derek. Hi, Sarah. Nice to be here. Well, thank you for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. We're going to to be talking about identity and storytelling and allowing the conversation to sort of take us where it takes us. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Let me read your bio, Derek, and then I will toss it over to you to elaborate, share a little bit more about yourself or your your own journey to whatever extent that you would like to. That feels okay. Sounds good. Thank you. Yes. D- Dr. Derek Daniels is a licensed and certified speech-language pathologist who specializes in stuttering therapy. He is also an associate professor and graduate program director in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, where he teaches courses on stuttering and supervises graduate student training in stuttering. Derek ha- has presented locally, nationally, and internationally on stuttering, and he, he, he is a person who stutters himself. His research focuses on psychosocial experiences of stuttering, identity, and intersectionality. He has participated in many self-help events, workshops, and cl- cl- clinical training programs for people who stutter. Derek is a native of Houston, Texas, and currently enjoys urban living in Detroit. He is a past president of the Michigan Speech Language Hearing Association, and I had the privilege of talking to Derek and getting to know him a bit better at the Friends Convention this uh, summer. Well, welcome, Derek. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me to have a conversation with you. Would you want to elaborate or share a little bit more about yourself or your own journey with listeners? Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting that when I was growing up, stuttering was always a source of shame for me. And now I think it's my superpower. (laughs) I just do all things stuttering. So I'm a stutterer. I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. And my stuttering certainly looked a lot different and sounded different than it does now. But it was always a mystery to me why, you know, People always tell me to slow down or take a breath or just say what you want to say. And the harder I tried, the more difficult it became. So it was just always a mystery why my words never flowed the way I wanted them to. But, you know, I went through all of my school years from kindergarten up through 12th grade, and I never had speech therapy. I didn't even know what a speech language pathologist was. So again, I did I did whatever I could to conceal my stuttering. And so I went off to college and thought I wanted to be a medical doctor and that didn't work out. So I needed to do something different. And then a friend of mine suggested uh, speech language pathology. And so I just looked into it and a whole world opened up. So I just think looking at my own experience, I just really became interested in the personal side of what it means to live as a person who stutters. But, you know, now I, I do all things stuttering. So I teach, I do research, I travel to conferences, workshops. So my whole life now revolves around stuttering. But it's interesting that that's, that's what my life is now compared to when I was little. And I, I thought that it was such a, it was just so, sti- it was so self-stigmatizing to me. I could really resonate with that. In, in, in some similarities and parallels related to 
you know, not really being exposed to speech therapy or stuttering, even though inside I, I had a lot of worries and wondering and questions, but just didn't have the, the, the resources or connection to anything. And then my younger self, just imagining if I told my younger self that I was working within stuttering in all capacities now, I think there's no way I would have believed it. <laughs> right. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so I know affirming identity and storytelling are important to you. I'm wondering if you could start, start us off and, and if you could talk a little bit about why that's important and a bit more to, to listeners in those areas. Absolutely. Yes. So I think when I reflect upon my own personal journey as a person who stutters, and when I reflect upon the years that I've worked with people who stutter, so I've been working with people who stutter since 2002, so that's like 20 years now, it has become really clear to me that affirming people for who they are, that can really change a person's life. You know, I have a little story here about Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison was one of my favorite writers, and she passed away um, a few years ago. But Toni Morrison wrote a book. Her first novel was called The Bluest Eye, and it was about an African-American girl who prayed for blue eyes because she thought that that would make her beautiful. And so that book was chosen as a book club selection. And so Toni Morrison was there talking with the participants who read the book. And so one of the things that she talked about, she said when she was early in motherhood, she said when she would walk into a room, she would always look at her children with a critical face, like, um, is your hair combed? Um, is your shirt tucked in? Are your shoes tied? And she said what she found out was that children really want to know, do your eyes light up when I walk into the room? She said that you think that your love and affection is on display because you're caring for them. It's not. But she said that's really what kids are looking for. When you walk into a room, do your eyes light up? And I thought about that. I was like, that's a really, really powerful message about what it means to affirm people. You know, when you enter this space, does it matter to you that, that, that I entered this space? And so I just sort of use that as sort of a springboard for talking about how important it is that we affirm people for who they are and for their abilities. And, you know, not affirming people for who they are could go the opposite way. So I think all of us can probably remember a time when someone said something to us that was powerful, that was validating, and we held on to that. And we can also probably think of a time where someone maybe didn't affirm us or didn't validate us or maybe said something that was not affirming, and we hold on to that too. So I think we hold on to these memories of affirmation. We also hold on to these memories where we weren't affirmed. And I just think that, you know, bringing this to people who stutter, that can be a really powerful thing when we affirm clients for who they are. You know, I think if we think about stigma and self-stigma and the origin of that, I think the or a lot of the origin of self-stigma comes from internalizing negative experiences that we have. So when I think about working with people who stutter and I think about the experiences that people who stutter have had, you know, a lot of times when I hear people share their stories of stuttering, I think to myself, wow, this is a person who really just was never affirmed for their communication, never affirmed for who they were. And 
and my therapy with them through my dialogue with them, through my activities with them, what I do with them, I can reverse that process and give them a different type of experience that they can hold on to in their brain. And that, you know, I think can change the trajectory of their life. As you were talking, I was reflecting back just as you had prompted us to think about a, a, a situation that that was affirming and then on the converse. And you know what immediately came to mind was was this kind of sense of comfort. And and I, I kind of got the chills a little bit remembering that s- space and sense of self that I had in that moment. Right. And I don't even really remember a lot about what the person did or didn't do, which is interesting. It's more right. just a, remem- a memory of how I was feeling. Right. And that's so important because you held on to that feeling and what the person did or said may, you know, you may remember it, you may not remember it, but you held on to the feeling of it. Yes. Yeah. I think I do remember that there was plenty of space Uh, left. Uh, And I'm wondering if you could kind of delve into and share a little bit more about how, how can we support an affirming process and how do we create a space that, that, enables that feeling. Absolutely. So this really ties into storytelling. You know, the first thing when a cl- when a, a person client comes in, the first thing I do is I say, "Tell me what brought you here today." You know, and even when I'm working with students, like we don't have the clipboard, you know, we just we have an open posture and we just listen to their story. And you know, whether it's um, a young child or a teen or adult, we listen to what they have to say because, you know, I've worked with people who started for a long time, but I don't necessarily know this person's story. And so I want to listen to what the person has to say about what their experience has been. And, you know, I don't listen with the intention of responding or evaluating. It's just with the intention of listening. So I think a first step is just to listen to what are the people who we work with, what they have to say. And then, you know, I always like to create that space in every therapy session. You know, I always take the first sort of five, maybe even 10 minutes for them to just talk to me about, you know, how was last week? You know, what happened? Did you do anything fun? You know, I like to leave space for clients to just talk about things that happened to them. So I always like to sort of have the first, you know, third of the session just be sort of storytelling. And then in the middle, you know, we may do some things that may be a bit challenging. And then that that last sort of five minutes, I like to do something light and fun. And I always like to at least say one thing that I noticed that went well today. You know, I noticed how patient you are with yourself. It's really important for us to be patient with ourselves. I really noticed when you were talking to me about your experience on the phone or when you were talking about this presentation, your face just lit up. You just had such passion when you were telling me that story. I like to at least pick one or two things that I noticed that went well and leave them and leave them with, with, with that. There's so many things that we can notice about our clients. It doesn't necessarily have to be about stuttering. It could be. It could be about stuttering. It could be about their communication. It could be about anything. But I think that when we actually recognize it and say it and verbalize it, I think it just leaves them with that feeling of, wow. I remember a client was talking to me. This was an adult client, and he was saying how he really wanted to improve his communication and how he wanted to use more gestures. And as he was telling me this, 
I noticed that he was using gestures as he was saying it. So, you know, and I just sort of mentioned that. But I think we can always find something to affirm our clients for. I I I love a strength-based approach just in life in general, because I think it can be so counter to how we talk to ourselves internally. Absolutely. And I love that you shared how you do that intentionally and in order to plant seeds, in order to start start to to allow people to open up more space to feel maybe a different way about themselves, or maybe they haven't had someone that has given them specific or positive praise before. And what that experience is like, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, how many people who stutter have you talked to who tell you about how people told them to slow down or to take a breath or to do this or do that? Or, I mean, there's so many, you know, and I think we're just probably wired to hold on to the negative experiences. But I also think that we probably, you know, we may have to think a little bit more possibly, but we also can hold on to those those really positive experiences too. Like I remember when I was in a fifth grade, this was doing, I think, Black History Month. And so I was chosen to read a narrative about A. Philip Randolph. So I had so I went down to the main office and, you know, I sort of spoke in the speaker and I, I um, read the bio. And I remember just trembling as I read it. And I don't remember stuttering when I read it. I remember just completing it and getting through it. But my fifth grade teacher said, Derek, that was so wonderful when you read that. Oh, it was just so beautiful. And I don't know if she was saying, I don't know if if, if I stuttered, whether she, she would have said that or not, who knows. But just the fact that she said something positive about that experience, I held on to that mm-hmm. story. You know, there was an experience, I was at a poster session once and Phil Schneider came up to me and he said, I want to tell you two things. Number one, never lose that smile. And number two, I think it was something about maybe the Transcending Stuttering DVD. I don't remember remember exactly, but don't lose that smile. You know, I don't know even know if he remembers that, but I held on to that. So when I think about experiences that I hold on to and those that I don't, I thought, well, you know, we can change our clients' lives by sort of planting, you know, different kinds of stories into them and affirming them for different things. Yes. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit, because it's important that we create the space that allows people to share related to to their experiences with multiple identities. Yes. And then the intersectionality of those identities and could you share a little bit about that and 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 clinically how we make space and support that that sharing process too? Yeah, so I think everybody experiences stuttering differently. I mean, certainly we have there are universal elements I think to an experience of stuttering. Like most people who stutter will say they have trouble with their name or with presentations. I mean, there are some universal elements, but everybody has their own specific story about stuttering that's unique to them. And sometimes those experiences can be influenced by culture. So, you know, I look at everybody as individuals and I never want to um, assume anything about a person's experience until they tell me. So I think one of the things that I think I do is some, um, usually I'll share a little bit about my story. And so I think my vulnerabilities can open up the space for the clients to share their vulnerability. But, you know, um, I think as the relationship that you establish with your client is made, those types of experiences will 
emerge. So, you know, you might say something like, can you tell me um, about your experience with stuttering? Are there any barriers to your experience that you think I should know about? So I just maybe just ask general questions like that. But I think usually as the relationship evolves, you begin to learn those specific elements about stuttering. So, you know, I've done research on intersectionality. So my first project was looking at the experiences of African-American men who stutter. And some of my participants said that, you know, being a Black man affected their experience a little bit differently, but some of them didn't. So there was variability there. Um, I just completed a project where I looked at the experiences of gay, lesbian, and bisexual individuals who stutter. And, you know, those experiences were variable too. So I think just having that in the back of my mind, you know, I don't want to assume anything about the individual in front of me, but I think I like to keep my questions open-ended enough. So I think one question I like to ask is, can you tell me, are there any barriers that are specific to your experience that you think that I should know about? And, you know, people people might say different things, but I think really as the relationship evolves, you will find out those, you will find those nuances. The emphasis on allowing the relationship to evolve, yes. I think is so critical there. I mean, you have to establish that trust and that therapeutic relationship to welcome some of that sharing and, and to create that space. Absolutely. Yes. I'm thinking about class this morning, actually, and it's an undergraduate course, and they are starting to have their first clinical experiences. And right. we, we, we were sharing, and a couple of the instructors were sharing, um, what's, what's one kind of piece of advice or wisdom? And I always, I, I wasn't prepared for that question. So I was kind of like, uh, and what immediately came to mind was, to ask questions simply because we can pretty quickly when we're we're feeling kind of nervous clinically or you know that we're supposed to show ourselves as the quote professional right that right. we should be telling or giving content and and yet what i think creates and enables that trust and space over time is putting yourself on even playing field and and yes. wanting to know that person's experience. And the only way you can know is to ask. Um, so asking questions was what, <laughs> what I said. And I'm sure they were, you know, not quite registering it to the depth that I that I hope eventually maybe that will right. be something that will pop into their clinical brains later. But and you know, that's a really good point you make because I always say, you know, maybe I know maybe a little bit more about you know, stuttering possibly. I mean, I'm not maybe saying that correctly, but, you know, I may have more knowledge about the science of stuttering, but the client is the expert on their experience. And, you know, sometimes clients will say things that a client might not say culture, they won't say intersectionality, but, you know, I can sort of see. So if a client is, they may be talking about their family dynamics. Well, I know that that's an experience of culture, even though they don't say culture. Or, you know, sometimes um, clients, you know, male clients will talk about dating or being being in a fraternity. Well, that is culture, even though they're not saying culture. So by listening to the client's story, they may be saying things that I know are elements of culture without them saying culture itself. But they are the experts on their experience. And together, we can problem solve how we think 
they might approach that situation. So I don't necessarily have the expertise on that. You know, again, I can talk about the science of stuttering, but in terms of how they navigate their experience together, I think we problem solve that. And I guess a lot of this goes without saying, but could you could you share the why there? Why why is it important for us to to kind of get to know and piece together someone's identity or identities? How does that help within the therapeutic pro- process for the individual? Yes, I think because you know we are a collection of many different identities. And even though in therapy, and I think therapy is more, certainly a way more than just um, uh, techniques, but when clients leave our therapy session, they're walking into a world that they have to navigate. And so I think it's important to learn about identities and maybe the combination of, of identities because they have to take, they're, they're taking what they're learning from us and they're trying to apply it into a world that's very that's cultural. So there are times where you know we may practice something or we may role play it in the therapy session, but they find it difficult to do, you know, in the outside world. So I think all of those things are mediated by culture. So how you talk to your mom, how you talk to your dad, how you talk to your family members, what groups you belong to. I mean, we navigate the world with our identities. And so how one person approaches a situation may be very different than how another person might approach that situation. And those things could be very culturally or identity-based. And kind of going off of what you were saying, sharing initially or, or sort of caveated at, you know, we're, we're, we're way more than just techniques or tools. And I, yeah. I mean, yes, yes. And I think to, to be way more and to get a little bit more depth, someone has to kind of understand their whys for developing what they've developed to cope in whatever capacity, whether that's concealment, whether it, it, it it's avoidance, whether it's openness or not not so open and to understand how that's developed and evolved there's there's reasons there there's core beliefs there and so they're really nuanced and are, are impacted by culture and some culture has overlaps of like you had shared earlier about some people's journeys with stuttering have some similarities but then there are just so many unique variables within there Yes, I'm glad you said that because you triggered something that I should have that I meant to say um, about this exact topic. When we look at things like like I didn't really come from a culture of sharing, so you know we didn't really sit down and talk about our feelings and our problems around the dinner table. That wasn't something that we did. So you know sometimes in therapy we might say, well, have a conversation with mom or have a conversation with dad or you know like assuming that 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 sort of the way we set it up, we're assuming that it will play out that way in the client's family. So if a person doesn't come from a culture where they share, how might that look in their uh, environment? And things like disclosure and being open and, you know, we want our clients to be open. We want our clients to share. We want them to disclose if they want to. But, you know, sometimes for some clients, there may be reasons why they might want to conceal you know, and I have to respect and understand that. So if a client tells me, well, I tried to do it, but I didn't do it, or, you know, I don't chastise them, obviously. I just say, well, 
you know, we sort of talk about that. But sometimes there may be reasons why a client may not want to disclose, or there may be reasons why there are certain people they may not want to disclose to. There may be reasons why they might want to conceal. And it's not for me to judge. You know, they know their lives better than I do. And so, you know, I think those are all, those can be very culturally based too. Yes. I think we could, we have swung a pendulum over towards openness in a way that can almost have a double edge shame layer to it because you, you need to be open. You need to, you know, remove the ways you've concealed and avoided and all of this stuff. And yes, and I, that has been super helpful in my life, but having a a lens of, of, of of self-kindness and individualization, understanding somebody's culture and background too, and making sure that we're not instilling from a clinical standpoint, a should expectation necessarily. Absolutely. That's that. I think that hit it, that what you said, hit it on the nail. The should aspect is what we want to be careful about because you know, what one part, well, even just the word should, you know, what one person might do may look different than what another person might do. You know, people navigate, you know, and even working on Zoom, you know, Zoom has really opened my eyes to the family life of the children that I work with. And so I get a better glimpse into, you know, how the family, the family dynamics are. So how I approach a family situation might be very different. If I know that that child is constantly being chastised about stuttering, then I'm going to approach that family very different than a family where stuttering can be very open. It can be very honest conversation. So stuttering can be a source of fear depending on the family and the culture that you're in. So I think we just have to navigate that differently depending on the people we're we're working with. But as you said, it's the should that we want to be careful about. I'm almost starting to put should in the same garbage can that I put fluency in. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about a client who I worked with a few years ago and he shared with me that they're based in the US but came o- 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 over from 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 Western Africa about 10 years ago or so and he was sharing some of the dynamics and misconceptions and beliefs that his parents have, um, his community has, and and he kind of straddles between as so, so, someone who has grown up half of his life in in the states and half of his life in, in Western Africa, and you know that was such a learning experience for me and the power of letting. I mean, I would hope that I would do this anyway, but I think sometimes. When you when when a culture is not your own, you need to to do the work to understand. And I just had to ask questions to the extent that I felt like was was within the comfort realm, right? I didn't want to push someone to share more than they want to share. Absolutely. And, and that's a dance that I think we dance. And you know, I learned so much about communication style and how this individual wanted to tackle. Um, misinformation and misconceptions that were really culturally rooted. Right. And that was a really, you know, I hate to talk about it from like a selfish clinical standpoint, but a really interesting immersive learning experience for me as a clinician. Right. Yeah. You know, I think we always have to approach every session and every client with an open mindset and with a mindset of what can I learn? 
Mm-hmm. We certainly know a lot about stuttering, but we don't know a lot. Of, we miss, may not necessarily know a lot about what that person is going through and what they experience. So I think always approaching your sessions with an open mindset and with a learning attitude, I think will help facilitate that. But, you know, I just, I'm just really just passionate about affirming people because I just feel like people have certain experience, they have had certain experiences in the world and we want to give them as many positive experiences with communication as we can. So that's one piece, but I think just affirming them, you know, just actually saying what we noticed and not attaching an evaluation or a judgment to it, just, you know, what we noticed. And I think that can really go a long way. And so I even encourage my students to do that. Find one, at least one thing, two is good. I mean, two is better that your clients did today that went well. Would you be able to share a couple examples, hypothetically with listeners there, of how to kind of specifically share something that went well, that's not just like, yay, great job. Oh, yeah. So... So very specific. So um, one example is the client that I referred to earlier. So when you were talking to me, I really noticed how you were using your gestures to help you communicate your idea. So that would be an example. Or I really appreciate how patient you are with yourself. You really take time for yourself. You know, saying that's really good or that's really really nice or that's awesome. That's, that is kind of an evaluation. But the noticing part, I think, is the important piece. Or um, thank you so much for sharing your story with me today. I really appreciate learning about how you experienced the stuttering. I really appreciate that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I comment on things like gestures or, you know, emotion in the voice or the face. When you told me that story, your face just lit up. I can tell that that topic is really important to you. So it doesn't necessarily have to be about communication. It could just be about something, some attribute that they have. Are there any other communication attributes or nonverbal communication components that clinicians could consider that would create that openness and space too? Yeah. So at Camp Shout Out a lot, we talk about things like gestures. We talk about um, having like a, like a strong uh, posture. We talk about things like um, having a powerful voice when you communicate, having a confident voice when you communicate. So powerful, confident voice, posture, gestures, eye contact, facial expressions. And people who stutter, I mean, I think sometimes we can be so focused on the delivery of the message that we miss out on all the nice things that people who stutter already do with their communication. You know, that powerful voice, that those facial expressions, you looked really engaged when you were telling me that story. I could see how your eyes just lit up, you know, your confident body posture. And I guess pre-COVID, the firm handshake. <laughs> or I guess it's a fist bump now. I don't know, but yeah. fist bump, elbow <laughs> bump. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then from a clinician standpoint, in terms of nonverbal or, or, or elements of a cl- clinician's communication that could welcome and create that openness, what comes to mind? So from a clinician standpoint, you know, I always try and sort of model those types of things. It doesn't always go that way. And sometimes I'll even point out my own 
things that I want to work on with my own communication. But I think all those things that I mentioned that we can look for in the client, those are all things that we can model in the clinician as well. You know, there are times where I might, I do I do this with my students. I'll play, there's a, a nice video, it's with Oprah and Larry King, and they're having a, a conversation. And have the students watch that. And I said, I want you to just tell me everything that you notice about what's going on with their their communication. So they'll mention the eyes, you know, they both are leaning in, they have like a forward posture. They'll mention the facial expressions, you know, there are all kinds of things that they comment on. You know, sometimes I might even just simulate or role play a conversation where I have just like a very flat affect. I'm not really doing much. And I have them comment on what what are you noticing about my communication? And how is what you're noticing about my communication affecting the person I'm talking to? So... Sometimes, you know, with role plays and just through video clips that I find, sometimes if you can observe it, then you'll know it for yourself. Mm -hmm. That's so helpful. I like that. And I guess one element to add to related to, to clinical communication and especially important for students, I feel like is giving them permission to take space and time in an interaction. I think that is so I talked about affirming people for who they are that along with holding space is also one of the most powerful things that you can do we have time and we'll hold the space for you and then teaching them that they have the they, that that they can hold space they're allowed to hold space for, for themselves so that's a big piece I think of therapy is holding space for the person in whatever way that might look and then teaching them that they're allowed to hold space for, for themselves. They can teach others to hold space for them. I love but yet that. we have to make and hold the space. That was so well, well said. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you know, I, I just think that there is so much about the interactions we have with our clients that are not focused on fluency that we can really, because again, if you think about the origin of self-stigma, it's usually rooted in something that's social. And so if that's how it's, you know, developed, then through our therapeutic interactions, then we can help to reverse that. You know, we can take, you know, our positive affirmations are things that they can hold on to that are different than the the, the, the negative affirmations that, that they've had. We can sort of, you know, that process can change. That identity process can change. You know, how you see, how you saw yourself when you were five is not the same as how you see yourself when you're 10 versus when you're 20. And so your identities and how you see yourself can always evolve over time. And so, you know, clients, many times they come to us in therapy with a negative sense of self, more or less, and we can help evolve that into something that's different. Yes. It's like kind of visualizing, unpacking that self-stigma that has similar components within those boxes and then their own that are products of their experiences in the world, socially, within their families, within their communities. Right. So that storytelling is very important because we have to know. I mean, we have to know. I mean, I don't even, you know, the first session, the first two sessions, it's all about story. I tell my students, I learn more about what a client needs from therapy from what they tell me in their story than I do on a measure of the stuttering severity instrument or any speech sample. 
you know, that doesn't really tell me much about, you know, the story I think is your most important evaluation measure because they're telling you what their concerns are. They're telling you how stuttering is an experience for them, you know, and then we can, you know, work to evolve that experience and I make sure I'm using the word evolve instead of improve, we can work to evolve that experience to something that's different. Well, this has been so very helpful, Derek. Thank you for all that you have shared. Are there any resources if listeners are interested in learning a bit more about identity, intersectionality, storytelling that come to mind that you might recommend? Let's see. There are some articles out there on identity. I have to really think about them. I maybe send you some resources to supplement this. But right. yeah, I know that there are some nice articles out there just on identity. There's also the book on stuttering attitudes and emotions. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Yes, so good the work workbook. Work. Yes, yes, working with attitudes and emotions. Yes. I agree. I love a lot of those activities too. Well, How about I, whatever you send me, I'll link within the description for listeners. And I just want to thank you so much for your time and everything that you have shared with with all of us. Awesome. Thank you so much for the invitation. I was glad to be here to talk to you. Thank you. And thank you to listeners. Looking forward to being with you all again next month.